Howdy, welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I am your host, Topher M. Ford. I've got the co-host here, Brandon Givens. Brandon, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. We had uh, today, Teacher Day, or Parent Teacher Day. So I got to see some parents. It was, it was, it was really great. Yeah. We don't really talk much about your teaching job, but, you know, how, how do you like it? How does it... Well, I teach, I teach high school government, and with what's going on in Russia right now, people are paying more attention in class. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, like, I keep t- telling them all the time, this stuff is important, and you're like the children of diplomats and rich like people. You're the ones that are going to run the world, so you really need to pay attention to this stuff. Like, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever. Then it's like, oh, uh oh no! Hey. <laughs> I mean, we're we're in a it's a post Soviet country too. So I was like, no, seriously, you need to be paying attention to this. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. People are listening more. Yeah. Well, speaking of post Soviet um, times, we are getting into the Soviet times. This is our second episode on James Jesus Angleton. We originally planned to just do two episodes on Angleton. But the more I got into it, as I as I dug into it, um, yeah, there was just too much, too much information, especially once, you know, you hit the 60s, the late 50s and the 60s. It just there's so much stuff that goes on. And yeah, so we had to split it up. And yeah, I don't want to uh, give too much away. So we'll just get into it. Here is. James Jesus Angleton, part two. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA Files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. If he hadn't been the counterintelligence chief for the Central Intelligence Agency, James Jesus Angleton might have been a lot of fun. Gary Abrams, LA Times. It is inconceivable that a secret intelligence arm of the government has to comply with all of the overt orders of the government. James Jesus Angleton. Confirmation bias is a phenomenon wherein a person has already decided that he knows what's true and what isn't, then rejects any information that contradicts what he's decided to believe. That person will also typically believe any information presented to him that confirms what he already believes. Jim Angleton was not an ignorant man. He hoarded information the way some unhealthy people hoard newspapers and broken kitchen appliances. Neither was he unintelligent or unsophisticated. He was a keenly critical and thoughtful individual schooled in literary criticism and spycraft. But James Jesus Angleton, convinced of his own suspicions, which were reinforced by great personal betrayal, became a tyrant of sorts, working within a private world that he constructed, ending up lost, confused, and unable to see his way out of the maze of mirrors he'd built around himself. When Jim Angleton's close friend, Kim Philby, the man who'd taught Angleton everything he knew about espionage, 
came under suspicion of being a Soviet double agent, Angleton came to his defense. Tim Philby was the head of British intelligence in the U.S. Burgess, his fellow KGB spy, was with him at the time. As the head of British intelligence in D.C., he came to find out that the Verona Project had managed to decipher information that there was a KGB spy working in D.C. some year before, and this spy frequented New York City. Philby knew this was his fellow Cambridge-educated KGB spy, Donald McLean. He and Guy Burgess arranged for Guy to return to London and help McLean defect to the Soviet Union. Guy Burgess wasn't supposed to defect, simply help get McLean out of the country. But they both ended up in Moscow. This left Philby looking really bad. Two of his former classmates working for the British State Department and or intelligence had defected together. Whereas Philby's betrayal seemed obvious to Angleton's colleagues within the CIA, Angleton himself defended Philby. He chose to believe that Philby's biggest sin was trusting Guy Burgess. He said as much to CIA Director Walter Bedell Smith in a memo. Philby had consistently sold Burgess as a most gifted individual. In this respect, he served as Burgess's apologist on several occasions when Burgess's behavior had become a source of extreme embarrassment in the Philby household. Philby has explained away these idiosyncrasies on grounds that Burgess suffered a severe brain concussion in an accident which had continued to affect him periodically. Philby was recalled back to London after the fiasco, and for the next ten plus years, he and Angleton remained in touch. When Philby went to Beirut to work as a journalist, the ever-suspicious Angleton assigned men to surveil him and report back. Philby consistently found ways to elude his watchers, but it soon became apparent that he wasn't doing this to meet with a Soviet handler. Instead, Philby was having an affair with the wife of another man. Satisfied that his English chum was a mere adulterer and not a Soviet spy, Angleton felt vindicated in his trust of Philby. But this trust, which Angleton was so reluctant to indulge in with others, proved to be misplaced. In January of 1963, Kim Philby defected to Moscow, and his decades-long betrayal became public knowledge. Angleton, who'd been one of the last few people to defend Philby, was devastated. Dr. Gerald Post, a psychologist who knew Angleton, said, There's little doubt it would have contributed to his paranoia. He must have wondered if he could ever trust anyone again. Psychologically, it would have been a major event. If you give or invest your friendship to a person, and he betrays that investment as cynically as Philby betrayed Angleton's, then future trust has gone. And Philby's defection affected Angleton beyond destroying his ability to trust people. It also damaged his reputation as a cunning spy catcher. Before Philby's expulsion from Washington, the two men had confided in one another and shared privileged information about their work as intelligence officers, often over drinks and food during regular lunch dates. Angleton had kept meticulous notes of their informal discussions, which proved to be a liability once Philby was revealed to be a Soviet spy. He told MI5 officer Peter Wright, I had them burned. It was all very embarrassing. 
In his autobiography, My Silent War, Philby remarked on their meetings, Our close association was, I am sure, inspired by genuine friendliness on both sides, but we both had ulterior motives. By cultivating me to the full, he could better keep me under wraps. For my part, I was more than content to string him along. The greater the trust between us overtly, the less we would suspect covert action. Who gained most from this complex game, I cannot say. Angleton's most valued asset was information. He could never get enough of it. So in 1952, he proposed what would be called HT Lingual, a relatively modest, illegal program to monitor the names and addresses of persons of interest sending mail to and receiving mail from the USSR. It would blossom into a full-blown surveillance operation over the coming decades. There are two principal pieces of legislation making it illegal for the CIA to simply read your mail. The Fourth Amendment requires a warrant for searches and seizures. Also, the National Security Act of 1947 prevented the CIA from having any police, subpoena, law enforcement powers, or internal security functions. Domestic policing was reserved for the FBI. In any event, H.T. Lingual started in 1952, lasted until 1973. The original stated purpose was to collect foreign intelligence. It started out with the CIA recording the addresses and return addresses of mail going from the U.S. to the Soviet Union or China. It evolved into the CIA reading the mail of peace activists. COINTEL Pro was the FBI system of domestic surveillance lasting from 1956 to 1971. They targeted any sort of subversive group, from civil rights organizations to the Klan. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's directives for the program was to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of these movements and especially their leaders. The CIA started its own domestic operations division in 1964 at the behest of LBJ. LBJ wanted the CIA to investigate domestic dissent independent of the FBI. Eventually, under Nixon, the CIA's domestic spying operations like HT Lingual were put under the umbrella of Operation Chaos. So we see the CIA started the whole mail reading thing. When the FBI wanted to do the same thing, they approached the post office to work something out. It appears as if they were told, well, the CIA is already doing it. So, it seems the CIA and FBI worked out a deal to share information. Namely, the CIA would send the FBI letters of interest. Now, J. Edgar Hoover was not keen to lose any turf, so to speak, but this seemed like a win-win. Hoover would get access to intelligence, but the CIA would be opening the letters. While the FBI typically gets all of the credit for COINTELPRO, Hoover wouldn't have been able to pull it off without the help of Angleton and the CIA. 
When the nation of Israel was established in 1948, Angleton was worried that it would become a means for Russia to increase its influence in the Middle East. But that worry would soon be alleviated a few years later when it became clear that, despite Russia's initial support of Israel, the new Zionist state had no intentions of becoming communist and sought instead to take a place among the great Western powers. Communist idealists were quite common in the Jewish community, as were anti-communists. Soviet support for Israel was based on frustrating British control of Palestine, which it very much did, and hoping that the communists of the Jewish community would be able to turn Israel into a Soviet state, which it didn't. Israel quickly aligned with the West. When the Israeli ambassador to Russia arrived in Moscow, thousands of Jewish residents came out and chanted. Stalin saw this as a bad sign. Ethnic nationalism competes with the legitimacy of the state. And, I mean, within this sort of Stalinistic and um, Soviet mentality, any form of nationalism is also linked to fascism, which, you know, fascism being one of their main enemies, having just fought the Great Patriotic War, or as we would say, World War II, against it. Soon after this expression of ethnic nationalism, many leaders of the Jewish anti-fascist league were arrested and or assassinated. Um, Jewish people were arrested under charges of bourgeois nationalism. Judaism museums closed and a number of Yiddish poets were executed. Key Israeli figures soon began reaching out to establish connections with the United States. Reuven Shaloa, the founder of Israel's intelligence agency, visited Washington in 1950 where he learned about the inner workings of the CIA. Impressed, he returned to Israel to overhaul their intelligence efforts, leading to the formation of the Institute for Intelligence and Special Tasks, otherwise known as the Mossad. Reuven Shaloa was a personal friend of David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel. Shaloa was born in Jerusalem when it was under Ottoman rule. He had connections with intelligence agents from across the world. After the formation of Israel, Ben-Gurion asked Shaloa to create the Central Institute for Coordination, otherwise known as Mossad. It officially began April 1st, 1951. Angleton, who'd once been quite comfortable with anti-Semitism, developed a change of heart after meeting with Shaloa and Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. Where he'd initially feared the development of a new Soviet proxy state, he now saw the opportunity to gain a strong anti-communist ally in the Middle East. Angleton met with Shaloa, and the two established a partnership between the CIA and the Mossad, agreeing to share intelligence going forward. Angleton then visited Shaloa in Israel, where he strengthened the bonds between the two agencies. Angleton was appointed the liaison between the CIA and the Mossad, an arrangement that would prove fruitful when a priceless Soviet document found its way to the Israeli embassy in Poland, a copy of a speech titled, 
on the cult of the individual and its consequences, better known as Nikita Khrushchev's fabled secret speech. One day, in Warsaw, Poland, a Jewish journalist named Wiktor Grajewski stopped by the Central Committee of the Polish Communist Party. He dropped in to visit his girlfriend, Lucia Baranowska, who worked there. Baranowska was in the process of leaving her husband, who was a top official within the party. She happened to have a copy of Khrushchev's speech on her desk and showed it to Grajewski. They'd heard that the United States was offering a $1 million reward for the speech, and she agreed to let him borrow it. After reading it, Grajewski felt compelled to share it with the Israeli government, and after receiving his girlfriend's blessing, he did just that. Grajewski didn't even ask for the reward. He later explained what made him decide to leak the speech and what he went through when he delivered it to the Israeli embassy. I put the booklet under my coat and left the building without anyone being suspicious or examining me. After all, they all knew me. At home, when I read the speech, I was shocked. Such crimes. Stalin a murderer. I felt that I was holding an atom bomb, and since I knew that the entire world was looking for the speech, I understood that if I threw the bomb, it would explode. I decided to go back and return the booklet to Lucia. But on the way, I thought about it a lot, and I decided to go to the embassy, to Yakov Barmore. Poland hadn't done anything bad to me, but my heart was with Israel, and I wanted to help. I went to the embassy and rang the bell. The building was surrounded by Polish soldiers and policemen, and there were cameras all around, which checked everyone who entered. I went to Barmore's office and told him, Look, look what I have. He turned white, then red, and then changed colors again. He asked to take the booklet for a minute, and he returned to me an hour and a half later. No, I'm not a hero. I didn't make history. The person who made history was Khrushchev. I met up with history for a few hours, and our ways parted. In 1956, the Soviet Union held the 20th Party Congress. This was the first one since Stalin's death. Typically, in communist one-party states, the Party Congress meets, and they do that to come up with policies and plans, which are converted into marching orders for the government, you know, like the de jure government. The Congress itself is elected by party members. Ideally, it is representative. It's why the communists like to call their nations democratic people's republics. Part of the reason. And it's telling that it was the first one since Stalin's death. In a closed-door meeting of this Congress, Soviet Premier Khrushchev gave a speech criticizing cults of personalities, namely Stalin's. U.S. intelligence didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know if it was some sort of maneuver or gesture. It's likely, though, that there was no secret message. As Premier, Khrushchev reduced censorship and oppression. He freed millions from the gulags and is known for de-Stalinization. He also focused on housing and education with mixed success, and he focused as well on agricultural reforms, but those largely fell flat. Amos Manor, the head of Israeli counter-espionage, passed the speech along to Angleton, who couldn't have been happier unless Khrushchev himself had called him personally to admit total defeat. 
A copy was provided to the New York Times, and another version, edited by Angleton, was sent overseas. Angleton added another 34 paragraphs to the speech that mentioned negative statements that Khrushchev had said to some people at some time, just not during that speech, about China and India. Thanks to Angleton's clever editing, the Soviet Union's reputation among two of the largest populations in the world was damaged. Angleton, director Alan Dulles, and everyone else at the CIA considered finding and disseminating Khrushchev's speech as a major win in the fight against communism. In 1953, Dwight D. Eisenhower became the president of the United States and he appointed Alan Dulles as the first civilian director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Alan, along with his older brother, John Foster Dulles, ushered in a new era of foreign policy, which would rely heavily on the relatively new CIA. Jim Angleton began working closely with Alan Dulles, often bypassing standard operating procedure in favor of private meetings. Senior CIA officer Tom Braden said, Jim came in and out of Dulles' office a lot. He always came alone and had this aura of secrecy about him, something that made him stand out, even among other secretive CIA officers. In those days, there was a general CIA camaraderie, but Jim made himself exempt from this. He was a loner who worked alone. Angleton was working to convince Dulles that the CIA needed its own dedicated counterintelligence office. Angleton would get his wish soon. In July 1954, President Eisenhower tasked U.S. Army General James Doolittle with researching the efforts and effectiveness of the CIA. Doolittle's report was highly critical of the agency. In closed meetings, Angleton had been extolling the need for counterintelligence unit, and Doolittle had become convinced, as did Dulles. By December 1954, Angleton had his group. Dulles formed the counterintelligence staff and appointed Angleton the head. Angleton brought his proclivity for literary style analysis to his new job. He built a historical archive on the history of Russian intelligence dating back to the days of the Tsar. He and his staff pored over historical records as well as reams of U.S. intelligence reports in an effort to understand the mind of a communist intelligence operative. Angleton had once helped the CIA establish its meticulous methods for record-keeping and documentation of information, including sources of intelligence, methods and contexts surrounding the intelligence, and records of anyone within the CIA who accessed the information. Once he became head of the counterintelligence staff, Angleton used his detailed knowledge of the CIA's filing systems to avoid them completely. He built his own repository of records, which he controlled access to, or in some cases even the knowledge of the record's existence. The extent of his secret records wouldn't come to light until George Kolaris took over his job in 1975. Angleton felt that his job was being hampered by the law prohibiting the CIA from conducting operations on U.S. soil. In order to cover this gap, he reached out to another legendary American paranoiac, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover was famously jealous of the CIA and initially balked at Angleton's request for cooperation. 
but Angleton persuaded Hoover by agreeing to give him information on the CIA. If you recall our episode on Carmel Offey, it was Angleton who leaked damaging information on Offey to Hoover, who used the information to have Offey fired from the CIA. To be fair to Angleton, double agents and moles did exist. He was working for U.S. intelligence, after all. There are a few events that served to confirm his worst fears. One such event occurred in 1959, when the CIA lost one of its best Soviet moles, Pyotr Popov. An officer in Russia's GRU, Popov was angry at Soviet leadership for exploitation of the peasant class, of which his family were members. In 1953, he made contact with someone in the American embassy in Vienna, letting them know he was willing to sell Soviet secrets. Over the next six years, he provided the U.S. with incredible intelligence, including Soviet Army field manuals and information on Soviet nuclear submarines. On October 8, 1959, Russell Langell, an American diplomat posted in Moscow, was arrested on charges of espionage. He was later expelled from the country. This event was of great concern to the CIA, as Langell had been Popov's handler. Their worst fears were soon confirmed when it was discovered that Popov had been arrested for working as a spy. Several CIA officers who were familiar with the case and who had worked with Popov concluded that he'd been exposed by the poor operational security practices of one of his contacts. The officers backed up their assertions with strong evidence. But Angleton suspected that Popov had been sold out by an elusive mole working within the CIA. As time passed, this suspicion became a fact of Angleton's reality, an unshakable belief that fed into his paranoid obsessions, obsessions that would only grow stronger with the defection of another Soviet spy named Anatoly Galitsyn. Jim Angleton was notoriously suspicious of any person from the Soviet Union offering intelligence in return for asylum. He worried constantly of double agents and deceptive schemes working in favor of the enemy. But for some reason, he wholeheartedly accepted the word of Anatoly Galitsyn. Anatoly Galitsyn was a KGB officer stationed in Helsinki. He defected with his wife and daughter to the CIA. He made some fairly outrageous claims. He claimed perestroika, all this whole opening to the West, was just a ploy, and all of it were ploys staged by the KGB and a trap for Europe. These claims made for good reading for conspiracy theorists, which again makes his motives questionable. When Galitzin arrived at CIA headquarters in Washington, he was met with skepticism. Officers there found him to be obnoxious, self-important, demanding, and largely untrustworthy. Angleton, ever the contrarian at heart, disagreed with his colleagues. Galitzin demanded to see Angleton, declaring that he was the only person there smart enough to believe what Galitzin had to say. Galitzin mirrored Angleton's paranoia and predilection for wild conspiracies. 
What he told Angleton confirmed all of Angleton's paranoid fantasies, and Galitzin soon became one of Angleton's primary sources of information. Galitzin told Angleton that the CIA had been penetrated by double agents and moles at every level. He fed Angleton outrageous stories of high-level elected officials working secretly to further the communist agenda, including British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Harold Wilson was a member of the Liberal British Political Labour Party, and he was elected to Prime Minister in 1964. Because of his progressive views, he was often accused of being a communist by many conservative politicians. His conservative predecessor, Hugh Gateskill, had died unexpectedly in 1963, and Gallitzin convinced Angleton that the KGB had killed Gallitzin in order to make room for their man, Harold Wilson, who Gallitzin claimed had been working for the Soviets his entire political career. Gallitzin also accused several members of the CIA of working for the KGB. He never offered any real evidence of these accusations, and subsequent investigations failed to turn up any indication that he was right. But a lack of evidence never convinced Angleton of anything, and as such, he managed to damage, or in some cases even destroy, the careers of a number of faithful CIA officers. Tom Mangold, author of Cold Warrior, James Jesus Angleton, the CIA's master spy hunter, said of Golitsyn, With these revelations, a minor and undistinguished KGB officer, working in tandem with the CIA's chief of counterintelligence, was now able to throw the CIA and much of Western intelligence into a decade of deep confusion and doubt. The acceptance of Galitzin's logic led to the betrayal and dismissal of some of the CIA's finest officers and agents. On November 2, 1959, the Washington Post printed news about a young former Marine who'd tried to defect to Moscow. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald, and in four short years, his name would be known by everyone in the United States after he would shoot and kill President John F. Kennedy. Harvey's attempted defection to the Soviet Union was troubling because he openly declared that he was willing to share information he'd learned working as a radar operator for the Marine Corps. As head of counterintelligence, Angleton quickly became aware of Oswald's defection and immediately began keeping close tabs on the young man. This included opening and reading all of his mail. Angleton tasked the Special Investigations Group with monitoring Oswald's actions. Their job involved finding defectors from the United States and exploiting them for information from inside the Soviet Union. Typically, when persons of interest became known to the CIA, the CIA would open what was called a 201 file on the subject. But the SIG opted to go a different route with Oswald. Instead of a 201 file, the Office of Security opened a special file on Oswald called OS-351-164. This meant that all of the collected information on Oswald would exist outside of the normal filing system of the CIA. If anyone within the agency wanted access to Oswald's file, they had to go through the Office of Security. This entire process was approved and overseen by Angleton. 
He wanted to make sure that if, if anyone went looking for information on Oswald, he'd know who they were and why they wanted it. Angleton's fears that a mole might find information on Oswald motivated him to keep Oswald's file a secret, even from the rest of the CIA. A year later, the counterintelligence staff was compelled to create a 201 file when the State Department requested files on all recent defectors, whether by mistake or design, Oswald's middle name was incorrectly listed as Henry in the 201 file. While no evidence exists to support the claim, it is possible, and perhaps even likely, that Angleton began using Oswald to run operations, including neutralizing the American Fair Play for Cuba Committee, who openly supported and advocated for Fidel Castro's efforts to overthrow the Cuban government. Oswald was an active member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which became a prime target for Angleton. Angleton eventually succeeded in neutralizing the group, and it's quite possible that he did so with Oswald's secret assistance. Oswald didn't spend much time in Moscow before he returned to the U.S. The counterintelligence staff continued to keep close tabs on Oswald, who now had a Russian wife and a drinking problem. On October 8, 1963, Angleton received word from the CIA station in Mexico City that Oswald had been seen visiting both the Russian and the Cuban embassies there. As it happened, Angleton was convinced at the time that a mole had infiltrated the Mexico City station and decided to keep this new information about Oswald a closely guarded secret. This decision would become a serious problem for Angleton two months later when Oswald altered the course of history in Dallas, Texas. All right, well, that was uh, Jim Angleton, part two. Uh, Brandon, any takeaways from you? I, I don't. I think I said. I think I said it all <laughs> in, the, in the in the show itself. But um, yeah, it was it was interesting. And just the more I, I researched this, the the world is like so much smaller. Like man, all these people just kind of knew each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, this starts that era of. I think about how much potential there was in the world after world war ii um you know colonialism was ending a lot of uh what were considered third world countries had this opportunity to develop with new freedom everyone trusted the government they thought that the government was run by the best and brightest people that america had to offer and the people who were in charge squandered that you know they took it as a as a uh what's the word like a given a, a, for a, granted a, a, <laughs> <laughs> that as um you know a mandate to do whatever they wanted to do and what they decided to do with that mandate was completely and totally undermine people's trust and squander it and yeah that's been my big takeaway as i'm getting into the cold war era cia is 
Yeah, and we'll hear more about this when we listen to Frank Wisner, who was the sole voice of reason, and his being the voice of reason uh, destroyed him. So <laughs> it usually will. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, be sure to follow us on the socials. Uh, facebook.com slash cia files instagram.com slash cia files twitter we're at twitter or sorry twitter at cia files podcast and we got the website uh, revamped having a little technical trouble if you go to the website be sure at the moment to type in www.ciafiles.net um, still trying to figure out that whole issue of if you don't put in www which most people don't these days so but we're working on it anyway um also check out our threadless cia files uh, dot threadless.com i believe that is and buy us a coffee.com slash cia files if you want to support the show what we're doing um yeah thanks for listening and we'll be back tuesday with a news update and before long we'll have our conclusion to Jim Angleton. Yeah, thanks for listening.